The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Zoomies, we got a special guest here today, Major Alan Tate, a prior Army enlisted and now Air Force JAG, who is a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, competitive chess player, as well as an avid ukulele player. He'll be delving into some of his experiences in the courtroom, paths to become a JAG, and many other important lessons he's looking to share with people who are looking to commission into the Air Force. Get ready for it. Thanks for listening. For the zoomies out there, welcome back. Today we have Top Jag, Major Tate. Major Tate, welcome. Thank you. So, as a Jag, can you introduce yourself a little bit? What your background is, um, what you do, how long you've been serving, stuff okay. like that. Sure. So I'm currently a reservist in the Air Force, and as you said, I'm a major. Uh, but I also work as a civilian at the, the Air Force Academy, uh, now teaching in the law section. I'm prior Army, prior enlisted, so I joined the Army in 1993 uh, and uh, served in the Army active duty for about five and a half years and then another two and a half years in the Army National Guard uh, before making a clean break. And during that time, I decided to go to college, so went to undergrad at University of Florida and got a degree in English and sociology and then intentionally picked those subjects because they had the most writing involved. Um, I was not a good high school student. <laughs> so uh, I barely graduated from high school because, you know, in my family, education wasn't really a big focus. Mm -hmm. And so I had no intention of ever becoming a lawyer, really. Um, but I went into the Army, and, and that's, that's sort of how I discovered law um, through the legal specialist program that I was able to, to get into. And there, you know, I learned about law. I was served with some really good attorneys that took the time to teach me some, some things, some really bad attorneys that taught me that I didn't necessarily want to be an enlisted person in that environment. And so mm -hmm. I got out and started law school, uh, first graduating from University of Florida and then going to Creighton Law for my law degree. And then after having been out for 12 years, um, I decided to go back into the military. Uh, and that actually touches on you know, another subject we might talk about. I, when I graduated from law school, I was 340 pounds. And I was in no shape to go back into the military. But I discovered that I wanted to be healthier, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was actually standing on the front lawn at our farm, our alpaca farm that we had, and my son, who's now 17 and 6'5", was just a little toddler then, right? And so he starts running towards the dirt road, and I try to catch him, and I like almost pass out in the front yard. And so we go to the doctor, and we're talking to them, and they're like, you're pre-diabetic, you are in awful shape. Your high blood pressure is through the roof. You really need to do something to change your life. So I signed up for and started training for a half marathon in Lincoln and ran uh, the half marathon 
And as soon as I got done running that thing, I said, okay, yeah, I'm never doing that again. That was the worst <laughs> thing I've ever done. Yeah, uh, cardio ain't it. I guess. No, no. It was horrible. But it did get me from 340 down to about 300. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the way home, uh, we saw a sign for a new Brazilian jiu-jitsu school that was opening. And I said, that's got to be better than running. <laughs> and so that's when I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And in doing that, lost another probably 50, 60 pounds and got down to a weight that it would be reasonable for me to rejoin the military again. Uh, so I was sitting on the end of a bed after having done a tournament. My wife walked in and she sees me sitting there and she says, you look like you looked when you were in the military. And that, oh, wow, I hadn't even thought of the military in, in a decade. And so I said, I wonder if I could get back in. And so we contacted the Army, and they didn't have any spots in Nebraska, but we contacted the Air Force, and they said, yeah, if you get your application turned in and we can get you in in the next few months, you won't age out. Mm-hmm. So I barely got in under the age to return. Was that like a... OCS or was it some type of direct commission because you already had went through some type of basic training? So it was a direct commission, but it was a little bit of a program. It was a sort of an OCS light called commission okay. officer training. And <laughs> it's it's there with OCS, but Oh, is that like the one that like doctors and nurses go through? Yes, okay. it is. It's yeah. that it's that one. Now they've done away with that now, and it's very much more OCS okay. than it was, but uh, it was having gone through army basic training when they could put their hands on you still. Yeah. It was a little soft, <laughs> but it was also pretty difficult. And, and I'll, I'll explain why in the army during basic training, it's a very Forrest Gump mentality. Do as you're told. Yes. Drill sergeant, no drill sergeant, go here, go there. There's not a lot of independent thought necessary, mm-hmm. but in commission officer training, they, Pick a command structure. So I was the flight officer in charge of my flight because I was prior enlisted and they thought that would be a good idea. And so I had to run the people in that flight. And then people above me ran the whole program. So in a matter of a few days, we had to build like a wing level, you know, number of people, a command structure with people who've never been in the military before. And so... They called it a leadership laboratory, and sometimes in laboratories things catch on fire, and that's pretty much what happens here. You don't just go here and do what you're told. Yeah. You have to sort of make it happen. And they give a lot of people an opportunity to try and fail, and a lot of people fail, and that's okay. But in the moment when you're trying to get things done, and people are like, why do I have to do this? And it's because you have to. Yeah. Just sign the paper. Just do the thing. Mm-hmm. And that was more emotionally frustrating for me than than Army basic training. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great introduction. I'm sure. So <laughs> jujitsu is now your like current uh, like mode of fitness. Yes. Okay. Yes. I still hate running. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just ran. I just got some new running shoes, actually. And it, I don't know. I was just running on some beers before. And I can't tell you, like, it just makes a difference because yeah. training for the PFT and stuff. But um, so getting into topics about being a JAG. Sure. Um, what does necessarily your – no, you're a lawyer. So right. So we, we know, right. like, what lawyers do more or less. Sure. Um, what does your daily to weekly work look like? Are you working all by yourself? Are you, like, constantly in a courtroom or something? Okay. 
Yeah, well, so it depends on what type of JAG you are because we go through different phases as a JAG. Usually right when you come out of JSOC is what they call it, the JAG school, mm. you're going to go to a base legal office. So that's sort of the lowest entry level type situation. And you're going to be given a job to take care of. Something like administrative law or medical law or dealing with trust in estates. You're going to okay. be given a little thing to be in control of. Like a niche? Of. Yeah, just like a little niche area for you to start to specialize in and to, to care for for that office. And you're going to be the officer in charge of that. Mm -hmm. And then as you get better at managing that, then you might move into like an OIC position for military justice, like the most important thing okay. in the office. Now, during that whole time, you can be called to try a case. Now, the military does not have a lot of cases, not in comparison to the civilian world. A busy year, let's say at the academy legal office, is 15, maybe 20 trials. That's a busy year. In the civilian world, a prosecutor, a busy year is, you know, 1,500 cases, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot more than that. So our attorneys get to spend a whole lot more time preparing for a case and thinking about a case rather than sort of a churn and burn type situation. Okay. And so that's the people in the base legal office. Now, after they've done that, they move on to a different specialty. Some will be selected for being a trial counsel. Uh, maybe a senior trial counsel where they're traveling around trying cases. Some will be selected to be an area defense counsel, and that's a defense attorney. They're trying cases all the time, right? So they'll travel all around to do cases as well. One of the other jobs that I do for the Air Force is a program called the Trials Program, and it's a group of reservists that travel around and teach baby JAGs how to try cases because, I mean, they're new to it. They don't get yeah. thousands of cases, and earlier and earlier in their career, they may be asked to try really complex level litigation. When we're talking about sexual assaults, when we're talking about murders, there's a level of evidence they're not used to working with there, mm -hmm. scientific evidence. And so we have a program where we go around and we walk them through one of those cases. Well, another part of that program is we're identifying people, too, that have natural skill sets that make them prime for being an area defense counsel and later on a senior trial counsel. And we start them down that stovepipe. Okay. Whereas someone else might be really, this person's really good at a subject matter. So let's make them an environmental attorney at the higher level where they're overseeing a bunch of environmental law questions for all these bases mm -hmm. or employment law or lots of different other subject matters. Okay. So it sounds like you just do like a lot of learning and training mm. between everything. I mean, you also mentioned in class, like there'll be, you mentioned like little oh. nerds like you that oh. like sit in a, a plane and determine like, oh, is this a, a legal target or yeah. can we shoot these people? Like you can be doing that as well. Yeah. So there's an area of law called ops law and that every base has operations that take place on them to some degree, even here. You know, when we have aircraft flyover, that's operations law. When we're putting up drones, that's operations law. Okay. And so that's at the beginning level of operations law. And as a person demonstrates the ability to work well within the operational law category, then they can start doing some of the really higher level stuff, like being able to look at target profiles 
and speak with commanders about whether or not this target is an appropriate target under the law of armed conflict. And so they'll be, you know, really close in the situation, often in the chaos, working with the commander okay. to call yeah. targets. Like advising a general, more or less. Absolutely. Okay. And so this gets it even to the highest levels. Ed Jag was once asked the question by a commander. Um, it was on 9-11. If we have to, can we shoot these planes down? Mm-hmm. And that is a law of armed conflict question, and that is something that a JAG would advise a commander on. Now, that JAG, who was a three-star general, when he told us that story, didn't tell us what his answer was. He says, that's between me and my commander, right? And thankfully, we didn't have to use it. Yeah. But those are the types of things that a high-level operations attorney may be asked to deal with. Okay. Um so you spent a little, a uh, little bit of time, uh, a decent bit of time between going from enlisted to officer. Right. What What's the necessary difference between practicing law as an enlisted person and an officer? I don't know if it's uh, branch dependent as well. Oh, sure. So enlisted members, when they're in a legal office, what they're acting as is paralegals. So the paralegal is the concept in the civilian world, okay. right? And they're, they're doing a lot of good work. They're doing some research. They're doing some initial drafting of things that the attorney's eventually going to look at to make sure it's in good order. But they can do a lot of good work. And that's why I became so interested in law, because I was actually getting to write up arguments and write briefs with the JAG later coming back and saying, okay, this was fine. Maybe move, over, move this over here. Maybe think about this idea a little bit more closely. Okay. You can also have enlisted members engage in some actual courtroom behavior, particularly in what's called a discharge board. So a discharge board is how we would administratively separate someone. Mm -hmm. And there's no legal requirement that the person presenting for the government be an attorney. Now, the defense has to be an attorney, right? Because it would be a violation of due process not to give a defendant their own attorney. But the government... If they want to allow an enlisted person to go in and speak on their behalf, they can. And so I know that I was given the opportunity to present some boards, some discharge boards to kick people out for failing PT tests or whatever, Mm -hmm. some sort of low threat situations. And I know for a fact that we have had enlisted members on this base be the presenters for boards. And so we're really giving them the opportunity to um, show that the enlisted members can contribute so much more sometimes than officers think they can. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I like to try to teach my students in class, being prior enlisted and a present officer, that our enlisted members are so smart and they can give us so much and allowing them to do so can make your career and not allowing them to do so can break your career. It really can. I remember the story you told us specifically about like, I guess, your situation with, like, getting kind of disregarded by an officer? Sure. Yeah, no, it was a interesting case in Germany. There was a couple the night before their wedding, and they were driving home, and they were hit by a soldier and killed. And they the soldier was high on cocaine and was intoxicated and killed them. And so there are some rules about how evidence is to be collected in these places. When you're talking about a concurrent jurisdiction location, that just means the military had jurisdiction and the the Germans. Germans. Right, and the Germans. 
Well, the Germans got there first, and they collect evidence their way, and it isn't necessarily our way. If they want your blood, they strap you to a board, and they take it. (laughs) And so that's okay. We can still present that evidence. We just have to establish that they're the ones that got there first. Okay. Well, I go in as chief of military justice at the time, staff sergeant, which in the Army is an E6, and I say, hey, sir, need to reach out to the Germans, have them come in and present evidence that they were on the scene first. And that officer said, who's the lawyer here? Oof. Right. And so I backed off. I'm like, okay, tough guy. You deal with it yourself. Well, without the blood evidence, what do you get? You can't prove that he was intoxicated. Right. You can't prove he was intoxicated. You can't prove that he was high. Therefore, it's just an accident. Mm -hmm. It's not manslaughter at that point. And so... I left the courtroom after the case fell apart and decided to immediately get out. I Mm -hmm. said, I'm never handing another case to another attorney again. And that's what drove me away from the military. And so um, net benefit for me, you know, going through the process to become an attorney. But when we fail to use our enlisted people to the best of their abilities, we hurt them and we hurt ourselves. Yeah. I think that's another really strong story. I mean, I think instructors all around base and teachers and AOCs, they all try to give us real world, real world applications of when you don't respect your enlisted, the people that are doing a lot of hard work for you, you're basically doing a disservice to the mission in general. Absolutely. Not only to, I mean, people don't want to be written off when they have good work to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um... You took a very specific route to become a JAG. Right. Are you? I'm sure you're familiar with more, like a majority of the the routes to get there. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I know it's not really easy to do straight out of the academy. I don't even think anyone. I could be wrong. I don't think anyone gets it as a job as a first assignment. Correct. Okay. So, we get one to two directly out of the academy a year. Okay. All right. I think last year we got one. The year before we got two. And so what that actually means is it's a program called ULP, all right? And that means right out of the academy, we put you on excess leave, and you go to a law school you've been accepted to. Mm-hmm. You pay for it, though. Oof. Now, what tends to happen is we get scholarships for people to do that. Okay. We say, hey, this is a shiny penny. You want them to come to your school. They crushed it at... Not just any school yeah. at the Air Force Academy, right? And that means something. And generally, people agree that means something. We just sent someone to Stanford last year on a full ride. Right? So it is possible. Is it common? No, it's just one or two a year. Mm-hmm. But you can get there in another way. It's called the FLEP program. And that is a paid-for program. So sometime between your second year out of the academy and your sixth year, you can apply for the FLEP program. Okay. And that is paid for. You go on excess leave again, but we pay you to be at law school. And then you immediately come back as a JAG. So in the time leading up to that FLEP program, what jobs would they prefer you to be in? Anything? So you're not going to be eligible for the FLEP program if you're in a rated job. Okay. Because they want you there. Yeah. Right. So if you go into a rated position, you're going to have to finish your full term of service before you could do anything. And I'll Mm -hmm. talk about that in a second. But 
the FLEP program is only for those who are not in a rated position. Pretty much any job can lead to it, though. We have attorneys who flept out of intelligence, out of OSI, out of logistics. So a lot of different jobs can lead to the FLEP program. And I find that those attorneys tend to be pretty good attorneys because they actually connected with the Air Force mission in mm-hmm. some way. Yeah. And that, that just helps compared to attorneys that just walk in and they're just attorneys. They're still good attorneys, but they don't truly understand the, the mission. And if they don't take it upon themselves to leave their office and go out to the airfields and talk to people and figure out what the mission is, I don't think they're as effective. Okay. So then there's a way for you to get excess leave, even if you aren't accepted by the um, FLEP program, where they say, okay, we'll let you go, but we're not going to pay for it. You have to pay for it. So it's sort of like the Yelp program, but it's a few years down the road. Okay. And those would be for people who are in not rated positions too. Okay. So you again, you get scholarship and you figure out how to pay for owning law school, and then you come back as a jag. And you like in the excess leave, you're still being paid as whatever base pay you're getting. You're, you're not paid unless you're in the FLEP program. You don't get paid. You're going to law school and figuring out how to deal with it. Okay, so because you're on leave, you're on excess leave. That means that you're just straight up like not gone. in like I don't know getting paid. Yeah. In any whether it's financial aid or. Uh, yeah, like you're using financial pay. aid and loans to get by. Wow. Yeah. So it's like going to college again. Yeah. But you go there, you become a lawyer, you come back, and then you have, you know, officer pay again. and Pretty much a guaranteed ROI. Yeah, pretty much guaranteed. So the, the last possible way is, this is probably apply to the ones that are in rated positions, you finish your five years up and you get out. And then you go to law school on your own. And then you try to come back. And there are plenty of people that have done that too. And then they got to try to come back. Now, they won't have to go to OCS again because they've already gone through a basic training and a commissioning source. Mm-hmm. They would just have to get through the application process. Now, having been prior military, that helps a lot with that process. Um, my, the fact that I was prior enlisted helped me mm-hmm. get in. But it is pretty competitive. Okay. How, how competitive? It's easier to get into Harvard than to become a JAG in the Air Force. You got to be damn good. Well, it's more of a just a statistics battle there. Just I, like a lot of people want to do tons it. Tons of people want to do it. And why? Because the job is so much more interesting. Okay. You know, within your first few weeks, you're going to get in a courtroom. Maybe your first month or two. That is not true in the civilian world. Unless you become a prosecutor or a defense attorney where you're getting paid less than teachers, right? And they're, they're having you do 1,500 cases a year. To be able to really dig into a case and present your best argument, and you've only been out of law school or out of, you've only joined this job a few months ago, that's unheard of in the civilian world. Most people don't get to try cases in the civilian world. They lock them in an office and have them write contracts all day or briefs all day, and only the specials get to try cases or those that have proven themselves. And once they have, they're the ones that want all the cases. And everyone else just has to sit in the corner and go over there and brief. Mm-hmm. Go over there and do research. That doesn't necessarily mean that like these jags that are getting into the courtroom relatively quickly, that they're like 
they don't have the experience. So right. does that mean like it, they're going to suffer in some way because they're getting the, I mean, you're getting the experience, but at uh, some sort of cost because they're not as experienced? Well, they're not as experienced, but that's why we never allow a person to try cases by themselves. Mm-hmm. So someone's always going to sit first chair with them, someone who's experienced, someone who's actually trial certified. When you get through JSOC, the, our JAG school, you're not allowed to try cases by yourself. That school doesn't prepare you. You have to go before a court a number of times with a first chair attorney and in that case prove yourself. And then after three or four cases, if you're, and you have to be good to get it in three or four cases. It could take 10, 15 if you're not good. Mm-hmm. And you might never get it. But then you get what's called trial certified, right? You have this trial counsel and defense counsel certification that I'm pointing to on my wall. And they don't give those to everyone. They give them to a lot of people, but not everyone. Mm-hmm. And it takes some time to get that. You have to prove yourself in court. So we bring people along and get them to the level of training. A person who is a defense attorney, they don't get to do that until they have that trial certification. Okay. <laughs> and they are considered the best of the best. So we make sure that defense attorneys are good so that people get an adequate defense. But those defense attorneys don't just get to go up against rookies. They get to go up with a rookie in one chair and a senior trial counsel in the other chair, someone who's also proven themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's like a really, it's like a paid uh, internship, more or less. It's a little bit like a paid internship to get you to that level of litigation. But that's why this is a very coveted job. You get early experience and good experience very quickly yeah. and get immersed into a different types of, uh, of law very quickly. And the work-life balance is actually better than in the civilian world. So when I worked as a, you know, an attorney in a law firm, a large law firm related to federal contracting, it was normal for me to work 70 hours a week. That was normal. Mm-hmm. When I've been active duty with the Air Force on MPA tours where I'll come in and do 180 days, and I I do that a lot. I've done about 1,200 extra days above what I'm required to do by my reserve time. But when I'm on those orders, it's weird for me to work more than 40 hours. You work a regular, normal, nine to five, five days a week. The very few times you might work on a weekend, and we're talking about non-deployed situations, Mm. but the few times you might work on a weekend is I, oh, I have a trial next week. Well then, yeah, you got to do a little bit of extra work cause you have a trial. Yeah. But then the next week after your trial, you're going to get like three days off. So the work life balance in the military for an attorney is so much better than in the civilian world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was the incentives of <laughs> staying in the military because like, being a lawyer in the civilian world is obviously pretty lucrative, but sure. like you're saying, there's a lot more than just money being offered in the uh, the military sector. So Yeah. Well, it can be lucrative. And that's the other thing that's a, kind of a myth that a lot of people are being caught up in. People used to think, well, I graduate from a law school and I, you know I'm top 50%, right? I'm doing pretty good. I'm going to be able to get a job making you know six figures. Uh, right right away. No, 
No, you're not. Oh, okay. You're absolutely not. It depends on the region that you go to. So in California, you'll probably get six figures. But in California, you'd need six figures to yeah. get a two-bedroom apartment on the 17th floor of a place with no uh, elevator, right? <laughs> and so the region might make you get paid a little bit more. But in most places, you're not getting paid that much right out the gate. You have to make partner to make real money. Making partner is the grind. That's the 70 hours, 80 hours, grind, grind, grind. When you figure it out, you're probably making 40, 50 bucks an hour, which is good money, but but it's not, I'm a millionaire money, right? And then you make partner and then you back down. You're not working 70 hours a week, but that's a lie. You still are working 70 hours a week because you're only billing 40 hours, but the other 30 hours, it's your job to go out and find business. They call it rainmaking or making, you know. So you got to go out and find business for everyone else in your firm to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not practicing law that 30 hours, it's not billing hours, but it's creating wealth. Okay. And then, yeah, you have lots of money. That's true. And half of that money goes to your first wife. And some of that other money goes to your second <laughs> wife, right? Because the work-life balance is wrong. Yeah. And so that's why I quit uh, the firms as soon as I could. So, yeah, it sounds like a fulfillment is also another thing that must be heavily considered in this job. Because you could – it sounds to me like you could be more, like, internally fulfilled and feel more like you're actually doing something if you're in the military as a JAG than a civilian – uh, judge or no judge um, lawyer yeah sure there are there people who are fulfilled by chasing money or chasing position absolutely and you know what we need people like that because that work's got to get done mm-hmm. but not everyone has to be that way to find success within the law but you have to recognize you know in my career I've worked for myself I've worked for the military that doesn't pay as well as the civilian world does it doesn't but you get some fulfillment out of it that you can't get in the civilian world I always felt like in my civilian practice, it was helping one set of crooks steal money from another set of crooks, right? And it was, yay, we won, right? I never felt very good about it. Now, as a prosecutor, you might feel pretty good because you're putting bad guys behind bars, and that might make you feel good. As a defense attorney, that might make you feel good because you feel like you're upholding the Constitution and making sure the government does what it's supposed to do before someone goes to jail. Mm -hmm. So that kind of fulfillment can happen in the civilian world. But the jobs that are fulfilling in the civilian world, they pay less than the military. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors, defense attorneys, they don't make any money compared to officers in the military. People who are working in environmental law and all that other stuff, they don't make any money in the civilian world. In the military, they do. Because they're getting paid as majors. They're getting paid as lieutenant colonels. That's real money. Yeah. So it's, it's all about being able to find some fulfillment and... Different things fulfill different people. So it's definitely not the right job for everybody, but it's been the right job for me. Yeah, it has an interesting level of barriers of entry, you know, because it's like, that is really high. I mean, considering all things that different people might value over other things, but that bar is really high. But like once you get over it, especially in the military, like you're, hopefully you like it and you're getting like compensated for it in whatever way that you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> on a little bit more personal note, do you think Brazilian jiu-jitsu or chess has helped you in in your profession? Because, I mean, those are very cerebral and, like, strategic sports. 
sure. know if you want to call Absolutely. it a sport. But. Well, so if uh, I feel like a defense attorney is having a really effective case and might beat me, I can choke them out in the hallway. And then... <laughs> uh, no. So um, in a more serious answer to the question, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has... It does everything I need to keep my stress levels where they need to be. Because every job is going to present stress to you that there isn't a readily available way to deal with that stress. And so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for me has been a very cathartic thing to go in to physically strive with someone and know we're friends, know that at the end we're going to be fine with each other and it's our job to push each other as far as we can. That's really useful. You can't think about what has caused your bad day when someone's on your back trying to choke you. Mm-hmm. That's all you can think about. And that those moments of clarity that pull you out of your everyday life and bring you back back to just one thing, it, it's huge. It's like primal. Absolutely. But it's also exercise, right? And exercise is a fantastic thing. We, we, that's, there's all kinds of scientific studies that show that any form of exercise helps to deal with stress and keep you in, in a good place. So just from stress management for being an attorney, it, it's absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. But it's also huge for plan building. Any person that's – I'm a black belt at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now, so I've done it for 15 years. And if you were to ask me how I make decisions, I could write a flow chart that would be pages long on the little tiny things that I look for that tell me – this person's ready to be swept with this spider guard sweep versus this butterfly guard sweep versus um, they, they need to be choked with a head and arm choke, right? And all these little things are little decision trees. Well, thinking that way and learning how to build decision trees in that same fashion is the same thing in court. It's the same thing with any job, learning your decision tree. The reason that someone like me seems fast when I'm uh, in a sparring match with someone is I already know that decision tree. Mm -hmm. They don't. And so I can make decisions just a little bit faster than them. And it makes me seem physically faster. I'm not physically faster, but it feels like it when they're behind in thinking. Well, if you can apply that in law too, it works just as well. Catch someone on the wrong foot in a law situation, present them that with evidence in a different way that they're not ready for, it absolutely can help. Okay. Now, when we're talking about chess, chess is about long-term strategy thinking. And so rarely in a chess match between two people that are good does it end abruptly by something that's, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you just did a mate in two. That doesn't happen. That happens with inexperienced people. With people who are experienced in chess, I win at move six and seven and eight and nine, building towards move 66, mm-hmm. right? Now, I can't see 66, but I see an idea that leads to move 66. So it's very foundational. It's like it has very to build on itself. Yeah, it absolutely. It's got to build on itself, and you're slowly building a position, getting your pieces in the best place to attack, understanding where your pressure needs to be directed based on their response, and so that's law too. If you think you're going to go in and Perry Mason a case, and suddenly you've presented something that the defense wasn't aware about, 
Well, guess what? You just lost your case because you failed to disclose evidence and you're gonna it's a mistrial. So it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. You have to slowly build a full foundation in a trial to get all the way to the end of the trial. And so it's it's nothing abrupt, it's nothing quick. It's very slow planning. Okay. And that's chess. Mm-hmm. The ukulele play into that as they... <laughs> the ukulele. The ukulele plays into just stress relief and fun. Yeah. Uh, keeping your mind young. I'm a hobby collector. I collect a lot of hobbies and try to get as good at them as I can because every different type of thinking expands your mind. There's lots of study that shows that learning an instrument helps our brains think. And so... Get out there, learn an instrument. It helps you think in a better way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, guys, moving on, are there any, like, I mean, you've mentioned a few interesting cases that you've worked on that you think cadets should hear. Interesting cases. <clears throat> so, unfortunately, a lot of the cases that I I was involved in deal with fairly dark subjects like sexual assault. Okay. And so from the interesting case standpoint that doesn't get that dark. Um, Preferably. Yeah, let's talk about environmental law and <laughs> the Preble's Prairie Mouse. You know okay. this mouse? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember you. <laughs> they go around and pick them up and move them somewhere Yeah, else. no, no. So, so in environmental law, so there's the mouse. It's the mouse here at the academy, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we protect our environment? while still being able to build, right? So that's a question. We have all these, these prairie mice and their habitat where we're planning on building the new uh, visitor center, right? Well, what do you do? To get environmental ability to build, you have to do what's called offset. And what you have to do is buy some other land that's prairie uh, Preble's prairie mouse habitat and reserve it so that it's always a protected habitat. And then that allows us to build on other protected habitat. Okay. And then how does that work? I mean, it, it only works in the sense that we've created a protected zone where other Preble's prairie mice can flourish. They might be a little congested. Well, they Maybe. might be, well, no, it's the same amount of space that we had over here, right? And we just created a protected zone so that in the future, no one can build there. It's protected in perpetuity forever, okay. right? So that creates some protected habitat. It doesn't mean, though, that we, as you were giggling about, we, we go on to the land and pick up all the mice and take them to the new land. That's really hard to do, right? <laughs> we can drop maps, but the mice don't seem to understand them, so... <laughs> <laughs> you told me you weren't going to make me laugh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't think that was that funny. <laughs> but so that goes into like how you're playing a role in like making sure that th they, they have a protected land. You're representing yeah. more than humans. Right. But that's an, it's sort of interesting in how we decide to offset. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, there was another case that we had over here that I didn't actually ultimately get to be involved in. But it was, it was as close to the script of narco as you could possibly imagine. And it was someone that went to a drug dealer that they knew of and then robbed that drug dealer in their home 
and then got shot in the process of robbing that drug dealer and ran to the hospital and then at the hospital lied about how they got shot um, and were they were caught with all the stuff that they stole, ultimately. So we're talking about count upon count upon count, so many counts against this person. And, you know, those are one of those situations where having a new attorney try that case, it would be a nightmare. We're yeah. talking 17 counts that they have to go into court and prove. Lots of scientific evidence and all that. And that's where we would bring in a senior trial counsel, someone with a lot more experience, to walk the younger attorney through that process and help them be successful. Give them portions of the trial with real responsibility, like you're going to do the opening argument. You're going to do the direct examination of this government's witness. You're going to cross-examine this government's witness. And give them an opportunity to really play within a case but in a low-threat way mm -hmm. so that we are also making sure we're protecting the government's interest of actually getting a conviction. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I guess to finish out, you are an extremely experienced, knowledgeable person from what I <laughs> okay. uh, can collect. Um, for all of the people that, whether they're cadets in, at the academy or ROTC or just anyone who's looking to commission eventually, do you have any advice for them? Absolutely. The thing that I have seen most as a problem in people who are trying to commission is there's a couple things. One, when you show up for an interview for a commission, any type of commissioning source, you need to look ready to go to whatever training you're supposed to go to that day. That's not going to happen, obviously, but the person interviewing you in their mind they should be able to say, if we had a bus leaving right now, this person would be ready to go. Mm -hmm. And so if that means that you need to be at a certain level in your physical fitness, you need to look it. Your hair needs to look it. Your clothes need to look it. Um, you need to be asking the right questions. When you go in to interview for a job, you need to know more about that business, more about that mission than they do. Mm -hmm. And ask questions that show them not just, well, what's a normal day look like? No. I understand that this is the type of mission that you do. And I had some questions about what that actually looks like when you're on this type of mission. So if I was going to go in and talk to, when I did my interview for to the JAG school to come in, I showed up and I bought a suit that was blue, like an Air Force blue suit. I couldn't wear a uniform because I wasn't in the military, but I bought one that looked like the military. I showed up with a brand new one guard haircut. Mm -hmm. When he was talking to me about, do you understand what fitness requirements are required? I had a PT log where I'd taken practice tests to show them, this is where I'm at now. This is what I'm working on. This is what I think I can improve pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm already above the standard that's required for this, and I'm ready to go. And then when it became time for questions, all right, I already have some uh, military law experience, and I have some litigation experience. So when it comes time for me to go through my trial certification, is it possible for me to do it in one or two trials, or are they going to require me to do three or four? Wow, 
That's an excellent question. Demonstrating you've researched this topic and you understand exactly what our mission is and what it requires. And it only took me two trials. So <laughs> then the last sort of thing that I would focus on is the military cares about service. Now, not everyone has specific service in their history, right? They, you know, I served at this soup kitchen. I served at this. If you don't have that in your history, maybe start adding it. Yeah. Right? But we can always look at jobs that we've had and think, I served people in some way in that job. And so taking jobs that we've had, experiences that we've had, and framing them towards the idea of service, that's going to make you the most attractive to the military because that's what this job ultimately is, being prepared to engage in service in some way, no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a big part of getting in here. Mm-hmm. I I don't even know how many hours of community service, whether it was just like doing parking details for my school, sure. like helping with brunches, stuff like that. I yeah. think, and I mean, I know a lot of Eagle Scouts that yeah. are people that get in here. So it's good to know that that isn't just like something that stops here. It's something that they yeah. look for continuously. Yeah, they are always looking for that. And that's one of the reasons why when you're talking about you've heard of the dreaded OPR, right? The officer performance report that you have to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Part of what you do there is going to be continued service, continued education, constantly seeking to improve yourself and help others. That's why if you're a pilot, only two of your bullets get to be about being a pilot. If you're an attorney, only if you know, I'm here as a professor when I was here in uniform as a professor, only two of my bullets got to be about teaching. The rest of it had to be about how am I serving the students in other ways? How am I serving the community in other ways? How am I seeking to improve myself through different forms of education? And so they don't want to see someone who just does their job well. I mean, that's great. But when we're talking about the next steps, we want to see service. We want to see constant desire to self-improve as well. Mm-hmm. And th- that's a big combination. Well, for all the Zoomies out there, there you have it. Top Jag. <laughs> Major Tate. Thank you for coming on, sir. All right, no problem. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Major Tate. I hope this episode was helpful for all the lawyer hopefuls out there. Like always, let me know if you want someone special on here through the polls. I want this to be a great interactive reference for the wing, so let me know what you want to hear. Thanks for listening. You're cleared hot. Thank you.